Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We're grateful for this opportunity to seek you out in your word, and I pray that you would come in the fullness of your power and glory through the reading of this passage of scripture and through what it means for us, and that you would exalt your name and glorify your name here in our midst, that your spirit would come and and remove any error from my mouth, that you'd remove any, any difficulty for us to see and enjoy Jesus Christ in this text, and that you'd cause us to become awakened to the greatest news in the universe, that Jesus came to rescue sinners. Help us to see that today. In the name of Jesus, amen. So it had been 400 years, 400 years since the people of Israel had heard from God. They had not heard a single word from him for four long centuries. And since that time, the Roman Empire had invaded the the nation of Israel, the people group of Israel, um, and had completely overthrown and occupied their geographical country. Everything that had once belonged to them was now in the possession of Rome. And in many ways, uh, worse than that, uh, worse than exile, if you remember, recall, like they were exiled at one point in time in their history, in many ways worse than exile, this, this experience of being captive in their own land um, had very little hope of returning home because they were home. And this was as good as it was going to get. Everything that they had belonged to this other country. And so the kind of hope that they had, even in exile, was non-existent for the people of Israel under the boot of the Roman government. And the religious authorities at that time, who had been charged by God to shepherd and love and care for his people, were actually very corrupt and evil. And they were lovers, Scripture tells us, of money, lovers of praise, and they pursued power, not God. And if the people in this context had looked back to the last words that they had received from God, they would find a message that may not be entirely encouraging to them. It was a promise given to Malachi, the prophet Malachi, in the last chapter of his book. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. This is the promise. Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then silence for 400 years. That was the last word they heard. 400 years is longer than America has been around. And Malachi calls this the great and awesome day of the Lord, this day that's in the future, this day that's at the very end of human history when God returns to judge mankind. It's a, a day so significant and so terrifying that it's, in Scripture it's often simply called the day. 
as if all other days were being drawn into this one final day when God weighs the hearts of man and determines whether or not a decree of life will be spoken over them or a decree, as Malachi says here, of utter destruction. And this great and awesome day of the Lord is racing toward every human being without any exceptions. There's no exceptions to this. And this is the last thing, keep this in mind, that God told the people of Israel. It's the last word in the Old Testament. And it's into this dark, bleak, hopeless context, 400 years later, where John begins to record the biography of Jesus Christ. For the past 18 verses, if you've been here the last two months, the past 18 verses of the book of John, the author John has labored to construct a prologue depicting the truth about who Jesus really is. He's told us in those 18 verses, Jesus isn't simply a man. He's not just a man. He is, in fact, God in the flesh. And now as John shifts from this prologue that he's had for the first 18 verses and he moves into this, the body of his work, he does not begin his story with Jesus, which is fascinating. He begins with a man named John the Baptist, who we will start reading about in verse 19. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please grab them. Turn with me to John 1. Verse 19. John 1, 19 begins like this. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So the beginning of John's, the body of John's gospel is an interrogation. A group of delegates have been sent from Jerusalem to question this man who is called John. Uh, He's not the author. This is a separate person John the Baptist is who we know him as, and he has been drawing massive crowds of people who were, as Mark would tell us in his gospel, going out to him and being baptized in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. That's what was happening. Luke 3.18 tells us that he preached the good news to the people. That's what John the Baptist did. And this good news is, of course, the gospel. In John 1.29, which we'll get to in a week or two, um, John even says Jesus 
is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the gospel that he's preaching. He's pointing to Jesus Christ. And so this delegation of priests and Levites are sent to inquire. They want to know, who is this man who is drawing these crowds of people and preaching to them this strange word and baptizing them in the Jordan? Who gives him the right to do that? Who is he? And so they ask him three questions. And these three questions, as we look at them today, will lead us into a prophecy that will explain who it is that John the Baptist really is and why God sent him. And this has relevancy for every single person in this room. This is not just a historic event. This has relevancy for all of us. What does God want to tell us through John the Baptist? So here are the questions. The first question was very simple. They asked him, who are you? And John knew exactly what they were asking. It says in verse 20 that he confessed. He did not deny. John is making it clear here. He confessed. He did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Think about this. They didn't even need to ask him, are you the Christ? They just asked him who he was, and he knew what they were asking because everyone was expecting the Messiah, this long-awaited Savior who had been prophesied repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. And John, at this first question, wants to make it very clear, I am not the Christ. John the Baptist is not the light that's coming into the world in verse 9 of John 1. He is only going to bear witness to the light, which is exactly why they ask him the next question. Question number two is, what then? Are you Elijah? Which is clearly a reference to the passage we read just a few minutes ago in Malachi 4, the last passage in the Old Testament. Um, And John responds to that with, I am not. Now, the interesting thing about this is, that according to Matthew 17, Jesus tells us, in fact, John the Baptist is Elijah to those who receive him. Jesus says that he is the Elijah who was to be sent, but John does not say this about himself, even if it's true. He will not take this honor, the honor of that prophetic role on his own, and there are good reasons for this. Unfortunately, God willing, we'll have to look at those next Sunday because I don't have time to impact that fully today. But his denial here gives way to another question, and they ask him, are you the prophet? And what he's referring to there, what they're referring to there, is this passage from Deuteronomy 18 where Moses promises the people of Israel that God will raise up a prophet among them And that prophet will speak on behalf of God. He promises them that someone will come after Moses to speak for God to the people of Israel. And in a way, that promise echoes in every prophet that pops up in the Old Testament, speaking to to the people of Israel on behalf of God. But there was one prophet they believed that would come one day who was the prophet, the final prophet, the consummate prophet final word of God, the one whom Moses was ultimately talking about. What they didn't know, however, was that that prophet, the prophet, would be one in the same as Christ. 
that the Christ and the prophet would be the final word of God, the word of God that would come in a consummate way, and he would be the Jewish Messiah. Much of the New Testament tells us and shows us and labors over the fact that this this Messiah, this prophet, is in fact Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the final prophet that Moses foretold in Deuteronomy 18. And so John, in his response to this question, says succinctly, no, I'm not him. And you can even feel in this interrogation that they're getting nervous, that they're concerned about this, because so far the interrogation has gone catastrophically It's been a failure. And they have to come back and they have to find out why this man is attracting such an audience. This man who is preaching and baptizing, they can't afford to leave him empty-handed and go back to the people who sent them without any any news to report. And so they ask him, who are you? We, We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? What are you willing to say about who you are? And this time John answers with confidence in verse 23 and says this. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. So this is John's answer. You want to know who I am, who I really am. I'm the voice. And then he quotes a passage from Isaiah 40, which at last tells them who John the Baptist is. John the Baptist is this baptizer out here in the Jordan, is the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. That's who he thinks he is. And while this doesn't end the questioning, as we'll see next week, it does actually show us who John claimed to be, and this is of major significance it's so significant for us to see and hear that John, the, the, the author of this book, when he's writing this story about Jesus, doesn't start with Jesus. He says, you need to hear what John says of himself. It is critical. The voice who doesn't even want to admit to being Elijah isn't the Christ He isn't the prophet, yet what he has to say is necessary for you to hear before you hear from Jesus. That's astonishing. That is astonishing. What could be more important than hearing from Jesus? John, as he writes his gospel, doesn't start with the words of Jesus. He starts with this man who is sent from God. And so I would like us to turn to that original prophecy in Isaiah 40, starting with verse 3, and look directly at the role that John is identifying himself as in redemptive history. Why is this so important? Why was John the Baptist born, and why does he come before Jesus? Why must he come before the Savior? So Isaiah 40, verse 3, and we'll look at these three verses. This passage reads, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. 
and every mountain and hill be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." So John the Baptist is this voice in this passage. It's the one thing he will admit to being. And just remember, this this voice that is showing up on the scenes, causing people to wonder who he is, is the first time anyone believes that they've heard from God in 400 years. There's 400 years of silence before John the Baptist shows up. And so what is it that God desires to tell his people who are in this moment suffocating under the boot of the Roman Empire with really no hope? I mean, they don't, they're, they're religious leaders themselves are not going to guide them back to God. They're blind guides. So what does God want to say to them through John the Baptist? There are three distinct parts to this prophecy. Glad we got it on one slide. Well done. Um, And I want to go through these three parts one by one and look at what they mean and how they impact our lives. So the first one in verse 3 is the call to prepare the way of the Lord. The second in verse 4 shows us how that way of the Lord is actually prepared. And the third and final, verse 5, is the ultimate result of of this call. So let's look at each of these and piece together why it is that John the Baptist came preaching the good news and baptizing. What's so important? What is so important about this prophecy that as it ignites John the Baptist's ministry, he must come before Christ. His ministry must be seen and encountered in the gospel before Jesus even says a word. And Isaiah 40 will, God willing, tell us. So the first part of this prophecy is the call to prepare the way of the Lord. Verse 3 says, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is what the voice does. This is what the voice John the Baptist is crying out. Prepare the way of the Lord. And he's doing this, interestingly enough, in a physical wilderness. So there is a a real visible aspect of this in his uh, his, uh, ministry. Uh, The prophecy is being drawn up as he's preaching the gospel in the wilderness so that every eye that comes out to see John the Baptist has visible evidence of what he's saying. But this line about being in the wilderness means more than simply this is the context the setting that John the Baptist is preaching in, it is a reminder to the people of Israel about their time in the wilderness. If you recall, they traveled for 40 years through the wilderness from their time of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. And then when they were exiled out of the promised land, they had to go through another wilderness to get back home when they returned from Babylon. 
And so this isn't simply a, a, a set dressing for John's ministry. The word wilderness here has to do with the history of the people of Israel. And the prophecy is a vivid reminder for these people of their time in the wilderness. And both these times, the time that on their way to the promised land and the time coming back from exile, both of these times had one central reason for them to exist. It was their sin against God. It was sin that had placed them in the wilderness. Um, the wilderness was, was, a, was a visible representation of God's justice. Um, if you remember, the journey through the promised land wasn't supposed to take, to the promised land wasn't supposed to take 40 years. It doesn't geographically. But they were wandering for 40 years and their sin kept them in the wilderness. And then their sin to... Uh, their sin inside the nation uh, when they were in the promised land itself is what caused them to be exiled in the first place and for them to eventually have to return. And so for John to cry out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, he's not referring to a physical wilderness here. He is referring to a spiritual wilderness in the people of Israel. And we know this because before John is born, his father, Zechariah, is told by an angel why it is that John will be born in the first place. It's this astonishing scene in Luke 1. Let me read it to you. Luke 1, verse 16. This is the angel talking to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, before he's born, telling him, this is what your son's going to do. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is why John was born, to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That's, that's why he came. The angel says, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And this may seem just like a prediction about what he's going to do, but this is actually a profound diagnosis of the people of Israel. Think about what he's saying here. You do not need to turn to God if you're already facing him. If you're walking with God, this doesn't need to happen. But they weren't. In the silence of the 400 years, they had abandoned the one who had always been faithful to them. And John was born, it, this says, to make for the Lord a people prepared. This is his purpose. This is why he exists. To, in the spirit and power of Elijah, turn these people back to the Lord their God and make ready their hearts for the coming of the Savior, Christ. Now, why is this so important? Why is this so critical? Why not have John the Baptist address the massive problem that's right in front of the people's eyes, the Roman government, the Roman Empire. I mean, everywhere they go, they see Rome. Constant reminder of how their homeland is not theirs anymore. Or, or why doesn't John address the religious leaders um, who, uh, who are corrupt? And in truth, John doesn't stay silent about the governing authorities. In fact, he's executed by them for speaking out about him. 
and he's not muzzling his mouth about the religious leaders. In fact, he calls them a brood of vipers and says that they need to repent, otherwise they should prepare for the fire. So he's not soft with his language at all to Rome. He's not soft with his language at all to the religious leaders. And yet his goal is not either of those things. His goal is to turn the people back to God. So why only address that? Like, what's, what's, what's the big deal? Why not Rome? Why not being oppressed by a foreign nation or these blind guides that they have as religious leaders? And the reason that John doesn't address those two things directly, the reason that's not his goal and his purpose, is that the biggest problem for the people of Israel is not the Roman Empire. Even if the Roman Empire could, at a moment's notice, wipe them out. In fact, in 70 AD, much of that happens. And it's not even, the biggest problem that they have is not even the the corrupt religious leaders, ultimately. Though they have failed to shepherd God's people catastrophically, the biggest problem that the people of Israel have right now is the problem that John is addressing. It is their own sin. It is this wilderness of their souls. John isn't engaging minor trivial things like the Roman Empire. That is not on the docket for him. He's dealing with the greatest problem in the universe for every single human being, and that is their sin. And the great and awesome day that is racing toward every person who's ever been born is this problem. That's the great and awesome day. It's the problem of our sin. Every person who's ever lived will one day face their maker and give an account for their lives. This is a fact. This day is real. It's, in fact, it is this day that Malachi was talking about earlier is more real than any other day. And I think it, it, it may seem to us like, and it may have seemed to the people of Israel at this time, that's a long way away. Somewhere in the distant, murky future, But when that day comes, most of mankind will say it came too quickly. I wasn't ready. Listen to Revelation 6. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when it is shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, and the generals and the rich and the powerful and Everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks on the mount, of the mountains, calling out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? John, the same author who's, who wrote the, the gospel that we are reading, wrote that. And he did not write it because it's fiction. 
He did not write it because it was fun for him to write those words. This is a warning of a very real day. Jesus talks about it using this same language repeatedly through the Gospels. And so when the angel says of John the Baptist that he was sent to turn the hearts of the children of Israel back to God, he is in fact engaging the most critical issue in their lives. He's dealing with the greatest problem. And yet, I want you to see this, we cannot afford to miss something that is vitally important about this prophecy. Go back to the slide from Isaiah 40. He does not say, Isaiah does not say about John the Baptist, prepare your way, or that John the Baptist is going to say, prepare your way for the Lord to come through the wilderness. He doesn't say, make straight your highway so you can get back to God. That's not at all what he says. He says, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight a highway for our God. The people are, the one, are not the ones that are traveling through the wilderness in this prophecy. God is going through the wilderness for them. He's coming to them. That's the prophecy, which is what makes the second part of this passage so amazing. The first was a call to prepare the way. The second is how that way is actually prepared for the Lord. Listen to verse four. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. So this is the prophecy that that drives John the Baptist's ministry, that as he prepares the way by preaching the good news, by baptizing people who confess their sins and repent, this is what happens. Every valley is lifted up. Every mountain is made low. The uneven ground, he says, becomes level and the rough places become flat as a plain. This is what happens through John's ministry. And in one way, he is speaking of this massive spiritual shift in the people of God by telling them of this Savior. He's saying, the wilderness of your sin will be gone. I'm going to do away with it. When John cries out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in John 1.29, his words are turning the people back to God and removing the wilderness from their lives because they're putting their trust in the coming Savior. And we're not, I want to be clear about this, we're not talking about just a revival in the backwaters of Judea. We're not talking about this small religious sect that gets siphoned off in 100, 200, 1,000 years. What John's going to do right now, preaching this gospel, changes the world. And what we can't afford to miss about this prophecy isn't just the, the eradication of the wilderness, which is going to happen, but it's the fact that God is making his way to them. This is vital for us to see. This prophecy is about preparing the way of the Lord, the way of the Lord. God is saying in this, this is his way. God is saying, I want you to know my love for you. I really do. I want you to know my love for you. 
This is my love for you. There isn't anything that can keep me from you. There isn't anything that can keep me from you. Every mountain will come down and every valley will be lifted up and I will come to you. It doesn't matter the wilderness in between us. Nothing will stop me from coming. In other words, John's call to repentance for the people of Israel is a call to the reality that before the day of judgment, there will be a day of rescue. There will be a day of salvation for this people, which brings us to the, to the final part of this prophecy, which we see in verse 5. Verse 5 says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I love that last part. He's like, I'm guaranteeing you this with my words. This will happen. This is the ultimate part of John the Baptist's ministry. This is his goal. This is why he came. This is why God sent him, that the glory of the Lord would be revealed and all flesh would see it. And John, the author who has been writing this prologue, now slipping into the, the body of this text, told us this already in John 1, 9 that Christ Jesus is the light who gives light to everyone. He is the word who became flesh so that as John 1.14 says, we can see his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And John the Baptist in verse 31, which we'll get to in a few weeks, says this exact words, for this purpose, this is John the Baptist, for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he, Christ, would be revealed to Israel. This is the revelation of the glory of God. He's talking about the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so while there is certainly a day coming where Christ will return to judge mankind, John the Baptist does not pull any punches with regard to that the revealing of Christ, though, in this prophecy isn't that great and final day. The revealing of Christ in this prophecy is the glory of Christ in the cross. And we know this, here's why, in Luke 3, when Luke quotes the same prophecy that is being pulled from Isaiah 40, he doesn't use the word glory to be what God is going to reveal. Listen to what Luke says here. Luke 3, verses 4 through 6. As it is written in the, in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the, one, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Luke replaces the word glory with salvation. Now, why does he do this? Is this a mistranslation? Did he mess up here? He didn't mess up at all because the reason he can do this is because the glory of God is the salvation of God. They are the same exact reality. God is telling his people through John the Baptist, he's telling them, Listen, there is absolutely nothing that can stop me from saving you. 
from coming into this world and rescuing you. It doesn't matter the mountain. It doesn't matter the valley. The salvation of the Lord will be revealed. And it happens at the very end of the way that John the Baptist is preparing through his preaching. At the very end of that way that God is coming through the wilderness to the people is a cross outside of Jerusalem. This is why John the Baptist came to preach repentance. This is why he came to baptize the the children of Israel so that they would know this. The greatest obstacle to them seeing the glory of God isn't Rome. It isn't the blind guides that are leading them out of their synagogues. Both those things are relegated to the history books right now. The greatest obstacle that keeps them from seeing the glory of God was their own sin And here's the deal. This is true about all of them, and it's true about all of us. This is the greatest obstacle we have. When Isaiah says the words, all flesh, there, he is wrapping his language around the entire world in all of history and saying that all flesh has the same obstacle. And all flesh, in order to be able to see the glory of God, ultimately, eternally, all flesh must see this salvation on the cross. We're all threatened by the same enemy. And the one that we're threatened by is one that we're solely responsible for, our own sin. That's the greatest enemy. That's the ultimate mountain. That's the greatest valley. That's the darkest wilderness that you can conceive of. And Israel was in need. We all are in need of a savior And in John the Baptist pointing to the coming Savior, he is holding out the only solution, the only solution in the world for the wilderness of sin, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no other solution. The cross of Jesus Christ is the glory revealed by God. It is the salvation revealed by God. And this is why John, the author of this book, begins with John the Baptist. Because before we can ever see this glory before we can ever understand the need that we have to embrace the cross, we need to see the wilderness that's in front of us. And we need to see that God is coming through the wilderness for us. The next few moments, we're going to continue in worship with the Lord's Supper. And I would like you to consider with me this prophecy and the rendering in Isaiah, just consider with me This prophecy that ignited the ministry of John the Baptist 2,000 years ago and recognize that if your faith is in Christ Jesus, if you trust in Jesus Christ, then the cross of Christ, which is signified in the elements that we have, that we receive, that cross has leveled every mountain in your life. You're talking about obstacles before. The cross has an answer for all those obstacles. Every obstacle the cross has an answer for. The cross has filled to the brim every valley. There is nothing between us and God anymore because of the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel has eradicated the wilderness for those who've put their faith in him. The wilderness is gone. It is gone because of what Jesus did on the cross. And 
what I want you to take away from, from the introduction of John the Baptist in this book. We have more to deal with with John the Baptist in the coming weeks. There's lots that he had to say. But what I want you to take away from, from this specific passage, this in- introduction today is this. There is no mountain in the world and there is no valley in the world that can keep you from God in Christ Jesus. There isn't. There is not a single one. Every mountain will be got brought down and every valley will be lifted up. The crooked paths will be made straight and the uneven ground will be made level so that we in the end can see his glory the way we were always intended to be. We are forgiven people because God prepared the way through John the Baptist, through our sin, through our rebellion, so that he could come to us. And this is the greatest news in the world. This is the greatest news in the world. It doesn't get any better than this. We get to see God because Christ came, died on a cross so that our wilderness would be eradicated. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we love you. We love you. My prayer today is that um, twofold, Father. First, this is, I pray right now that we would hear these words afresh. Some of us may not feel as though those mountains are ancient history, as though the cross has brought those valleys into a flat ground. We don't have to worry anymore about trudging through a wilderness of sin and rebellion. We've been made free in Christ Jesus. I pray that that reality would become real for us. And if we have not put our faith in in Christ, if we have not received what he accomplished on that cross, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and work in our hearts to such a degree that the, the reality and truthfulness of the gospel would take root, that it would not be a fairy tale, that it would not be something people believe to mollify their own fears, but that it would be absolute reality in our lives. And then I pray also, Father God, for our hearts, and especially who have been given the task to continue the work that John the Baptist started before the coming of Christ, that the good news would be preached to the people. And when I say people, I don't just mean the the nation of Israel. I don't just mean America. I don't just mean Seattle. I don't just mean Kingsgate. I mean to the ends of the earth. That the reality of unreached people groups would be something that we would do everything in our power, with our money, with our hearts, with our passion, with our own lives, to rid the fact that there are people in this world who do not know Jesus and there's no one looking for them. They need to be engaged. They need to be loved. They need to be pursued, Father God. Break our hearts to that end so that all flesh can see the salvation that comes from God. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.